Alright, let's get after it. If you have a Bible, Acts chapter 6 is where we'll be. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a black hardback uh, underneath a seat uh, around you. We'll be in Acts chapter 6 this morning. Uh, those of you who know me well know uh, an undergrad, I studied Hebrew and Greek. And so I'm kind of a language nerd. I love uh, word theory, um, linguistics, thinking through the way that the words run, the way that words work. Um, and it's interesting because English, and I was just having a conversation with someone about this earlier this week, English is one of the more difficult and weird languages um, there's ever been around. And what we do occasionally is we'll take a word from another language and we'll start to use it. It's called like a loan word. Um, So baptism is one of those. Baptism is actually a Greek word. We changed very little of it. We just started using it. We made it kind of an English word. Um, Well, sometimes we'll do that and then we'll slowly but surely change the meaning of a word. Um, And so you get these real interesting situations. So I don't know if you know this or not, but nice, the word nice used to mean ignorant. So if you ever want to insult someone, right, without being obvious about it, you can just be like, that was nice. That was really nice of you. You'll know they won't. Um, and so we, we've kind of changed the word of that over the time. Uh, brave, right? We all know the word brave. Used to mean coward. But over the time, we've switched it. Now, we still retain that meaning in the word bravado, right? Like puffed up, like it's not really there on bravado. Um, and so we have all these um, different things. I actually learned this week that... There are certain words that were just created out of thin air. Um, one author would use it, and then from then on out, there it is. I think Shakespeare did that a lot. Um, a lot of the words we have didn't exist until we find them in Shakespeare. All of a sudden, um, they're in our vocabulary. Grin. So, like, smile, grin, used to mean um, being upset or angry. Because um, you would, like, show your teeth, like, bare your teeth like a dog. Um, and now it's a term of, like, nice. Someone's happy with you if they're grinning, things like that. Well, the same things happen to the word martyr. Um, so martyr comes from the Greek word, um, which means to witness or to testify. It's a legal term, to give evidence toward. And so if you're in a court, you would bring witnesses forth. And they say, I saw that person steal the donut. Okay, he is guilty. You'd bring witnesses in. Other witnesses would come in and say, he's not guilty. I saw him. He was never there. I can confirm his alibi. You have these sort of witnesses. Um, well, in our time period, when we think of the word martyr, we probably think of suffering or persecution, um, possibly being, being killed for your faith. And the reason we now associate that kind of meaning with the word martyr is because of the early Christians. Because of the stories we're reading about here in the book of Acts, particularly the one we'll read this morning. Because the Christians, you remember in Acts chapter 1, Jesus comes to the um, followers that he has before he ascends and he says, You will be my witnesses. You will be my, literally, martyrs to the ends of the earth. You will let the world know what I've done. You'll let the world know who I am. You'll let the world know what I'm doing and what I will be doing. And what the Christians found, and we've seen this a little bit, is as they would martyr, as they would witness, they would get persecuted. And eventually, they would get killed. And so you'd martyr and be persecuted. Martyr, persecution, martyr, persecution, martyr, killing, martyr, killing, martyr, killing. And you can watch the words over time. The meaning slowly starts to intermingle. For now, we use the word martyr to refer to persecution or to being killed for your faith. You might know the psychological term martyr complex. Someone who thinks everything is like against them, right? I don't know if you ever talked to a person like that. It's miserable. Um, you want to exit, say it's right, very quickly. But everything, right? They're a martyr. Everyone's fighting against them. Um, and so we'll see that this morning in our text. We're, again, we'll pick it up in Acts chapter 6. We've seen some persecution as the Christians martyr, as they witness. But this morning we'll see blood being spilt. We'll see the first death. And things start to change very quickly um, after that happens. So we'll pick it up in Acts chapter 6. We're going to spend this week and next week um, working on these two chapters. Um, And so we'll look at a part of it today and then a part of it next week. Um, So Acts chapter 6, verse 1. 
Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve the tables. This is the first recorded insult of a waitress or a waiter, right here in the book of Acts. Verse 3, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and N, and T, and P, and N again, a proselyte of Antioch. <laughs> These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Verse 7, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing wonders and signs among the people. And some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and those of Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. Verse 10, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit, capital S, with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Break, time out, okay? Stephen proceeds to give a long speech. This is what we'll do next week, okay? We're going to skip the speech. For the time being, just be aware, he doesn't give a speech that makes them happy, okay? The speech is not a good speech. He doesn't cater to them, okay? We're going to skip ahead and see what happens after the speech. Next week, we'll come back and dig into the exact speech because there's so much there um, for us to learn from. So skip to 7, verse 54. He's just finished his speech. Take my word for it. It was not a nice speech. And then this happens, verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. They grinned at him. Verse 55. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, and they stopped their ears, and they rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. And devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. And he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Okay, we have here the first Christian martyr, Stephen, the first person to die for their faith. And really what we have here in these two chapters is a picture of the witness, of the martyr, of the, the testimony, the evidence that the early church is given to Jesus, to God, to the Spirit. Now, you, you might not know this, but today is actually Trinity Sunday. 
Um, so uh, in the larger world of church, there's a liturgical calendar with different days scattered throughout the year that you remember certain things. And today um, is Trinity Sunday. It's the day where we remember the Trinity. We remember the doctrine that Christians have of who God is as being three and being one. And so this morning, I want to look at the witness that the early Christians are giving to God. But first, I want to just be really clear on who we're talking about when we say the word God. I've said it before here. I'm not sure we can ever assume that we're all on the same page when we use that word, G-O-D. If you would ask 50 people to define God, you'd probably get 50 different answers. But the Christian God is a revealed God. And in fact, he's a triune God. He's three and one. So direct your attention with me um, to chapter 7, verse 55. Before we get into what the witness looks like, let's look at just briefly who they're witnessing to, what they're giving evidence of. If you look in chapter 7, verse 55, they're angry after speech, but he, it says, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. If you're a careful reader there, you'll see all three persons of the Trinity. Stephen's full of the Spirit. Heaven opens up and he sees Jesus, the Son, standing at the right hand of God, the Father. <clears throat> Many will notice that Christians um, didn't get the word Trinity, that language, from the Bible. Um, that's language that we came up with to explain, to describe what we did have in the Bible, which is that God seems to be three. There's God the Father, there's God the Son, Jesus, whom he sends to save his people, and then there's God the Spirit, who after Jesus is ascended, comes into the believer's and guides the church. And so on Trinity Sunday, it would maybe be fitting to take a second and to remember who God is as the triune one, as the three persons, but the one God. The doctrine of the Trinity is, in a sense, a very mysterious thing because you can't play games with the Trinity. So it's very easy to start thinking that the Trinity is three gods. But Christians throughout history say that's incorrect. We don't serve three gods, we serve one God. And it's very easy to think that God is really just one. And these are just three different ways that he kind of Three masks he puts on. But the Christians would again say, no, that's incorrect. He's separately three, but at the same time, he's one. It's the Trinity, but it's unity. It's three, and it's one. And this is a very, very, very important doctrine for Christians. Without this, I think you might miss out on the faith. You might miss out on what makes Christians Christians. So to run through, just real quick, a few things that are important about this doctrine of the Trinity. The first is that as we understand the Trinity, we're understanding the truth about who God is. We're understanding who his identity is. We're understanding who he is in reality. And in fact, the Trinity is what separates Christians from people of other faith. Without the Trinity, most faiths tend to bleed together. Again, we've mentioned this before. Um, we in the Western world typically refer to God, and when we refer to God, we refer to this kind of deist God. One way that is, is this God who's very far away. He's kind of aloof. He's not too concerned with the world. Sometimes he is, but most of the time he's not. And therefore, we don't really live our lives thinking about him, making our decisions based off of him. He's over there. We're over here. We'll do our thing. He'll do his thing. What we do know about God are these real generic truths, right? He created all things. He's all powerful. He knows everything. This kind of deist God. Now, the God of the scriptures is very different from that God. The God of the scriptures tends to get really involved in our lives. Like, almost embarrassingly so, Right? I mean, we're a messy, dirty group of people with lots of drama and lots of conflict and things like that. From the very beginning, God has kind of interrupted us and wanted to be all up in our face and in our business and in our day-to-day -day activities. 
And the God of the scriptures is a historical God. He's a God who enters into history in these big dramatic moments. He's a God who's around. He's a God who's here, but at the same time being transcendent and being all-powerful and above. So when we understand the Trinity, we understand who God is in reality. We understand what separates him um, from another God that others worship. We also get the language of how we should experience God and what we should expect of God. I was talking to a friend um, yesterday, actually, and, and she was talking about the passage in Romans 8 where um, Paul tells us that the Spirit of God, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, dwells in you and I as believers. Which is an amazing truth that, I mean, if we're honest, most of us don't live out on a daily basis. And that's what she was saying. She was saying, I mean, if I lived that, like the Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead dwelled inside of me, I would not make the decisions that I make. And I would not talk the way I talk and that kind of thing. And she's not a bad person, and, and she um, is actually a very mature believer, but she's just recognizing a point I think we can all agree on, which is we don't always, 100% of the time, display that kind of power and authority and grace. But as Christians, we get the language to understand that the Spirit of God dwells inside of us. We should seek His Spirit. We should allow His Spirit to move in us. We should listen and be sensitive to His Spirit. As Christians, we understand that Jesus was sent for us to save us, to rescue us, to set up the kingdom. And we understand that all of this was done out of the love that the Father had for His creation. Out of love, He sends His Son. And His Son ascended, sends His Spirit to Him dwell in believers. We also understand from the Trinity um, that God is more than us. He's bigger than us. He's, in a sense, mysterious. Some would talk about the otherness of God. I think it's fitting that when you and I try to talk about God, we run out of language. We don't have the words to describe him. We do our best, but at the end of the day, it's like looking in a mirror dimly. It's like having a, a cloth over our face. We're grasping in the dark. And what we have is how God has revealed himself to us as the one who in love, again, sent his son, who has then sent his spirit to be with and guide the church. And so the Trinity fuels our worship. It fuels our understanding of how holy and worthy God is. And lastly, the Trinity emphasizes how important community is. Most of us, I think, never really engage with this idea that if we believe the Trinity, what we believe is that God has, from all of eternity, existed in community. He's had friends. God is not a solo artist. He's not an individual. He's plurality. He's a community. This is why we might talk of the happy God. In fact, the early Christians used to talk about God dancing from all of eternity. There was this divine dance where the Father loved the Son and loved the Spirit, and the Spirit loved the Son and the Father, and the Son loved the Spirit and the Father, and they always existed in this kind of this perfected um, divine love and grace exchange where they served and glorified each other, existing in perfection from all of eternity. And out of this dance, out of this love, the trying God decides to create. And then that creation he invites into the dance. He says, why don't you come experience my love? Why don't you come experience my community? It would also make sense of the fact that you and I are relational beings. Whether we like it or not, and whether we're good at it or not, we exist in community. Our very nature. And when we look at it, when we study the scriptures, we find that God himself is community. We find that this is how all of reality is structured. And so as Christians, we worship the triune God. On Trinity Sunday, I thought it would be a great time, particularly with a passage that's very explicit about this, 
to recognize this is who God is. When we use the word God, we're talking about a father and a son and a spirit. We're talking about one who has entered into history to save us and who is now guiding and fueling his church. And this is who the early Christians are giving witness to. If you look in chapter 7, verse 59, as Stephen's been killed, uh, he cries out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. This is very similar to what Jesus says as he's dying. There's a big difference, though. You see what the big difference is? Who is Jesus praying to when he, when he dies? The Father. God the Father. Who is Stephen praying to? God the Son, Lord Jesus. Stephen wasn't confused about what he was saying. Stephen was brought up in the same atmosphere and environment, learning and teaching that Jesus was. There's one God, the Father. But the early Christians very quickly said, there's one God, the Son, as well. And there's one God with us, the Spirit. God three and one. The triune one. And this is who the early Christians are giving witness to. This is who they're going out into the world saying... This is God. This is who he is. This is what he's done. This is what he is doing. And in this story, in this passage, we get a great example, I think, of what it looks like for Christians, for a community, and for individuals to witness. Now go back to chapter 6. Um, we'll pick it up back up in verse 1, okay? So there is a conflict in the early church. It's funny when, when people get maybe surprised by the fact that there's conflict in churches today. Um, the fact that human beings don't always get along. Um, even in churches. It's funny, my dad, uh, before, when I was real little, served on the financial board of a big Baptist church, I think in like Friendswood. Um, and he retired from serving leadership in the church because of that experience. Because the way he explains it, he just couldn't handle seeing the conflict. Um, he wanted to come to church on Sunday morning, see the pastor, see the worship leader, see everybody who's on stage. And just imagine, right, that they all love each other perfectly. And they never disagree with each other. Not once, right? But in reality... The world's a messy place, including church. And the New Testament never tries to cover this up. I mean, if you read Corinthians, it's church gone wild. It's everything that could go wrong has gone wrong in the church in Corinthians. They've literally made teams, and they're competing against each other. Guys are sleeping with moms. They're celebrating it. I mean, everything that could go wrong in Corinth has gone wrong. The church from the beginning has always been a messy place that deals with the conflict within with the grace provided to them by the Lord. And some have suggested that Luke and Acts paints over the church's problems, presents an ideal situation, um, which I think is reading maybe not closely enough. Luke here presents a big conflict right away that they're going to have to address. And so here's what's happening. We've got Hellenists and Hebrews. These are Jewish believers um, who speak different languages. The Hellenists speak Greek. The Hebrews speak Hebrew or Aramaic. The Hellenists were probably from out of town. They'd be what we call Diaspora Jews. They didn't live in Jerusalem. We know historically that Diaspora Jews would come into Jerusalem to die. Um, if they thought they were near death, they would come in because they wanted to die near the temple, near Jerusalem. Um, what's happening, we know the church was giving out food and financial aid to people who were in need. And apparently some of the Greek-speaking Jews start to murmur and say, our widows aren't being taken care of. As much as the Hebrews. Most likely there were much more Greek widows than the Hebrew widows. Again, because they would come right at the end of their life. They would need to be taken care of. And so what the apostles, they get together and they say, we cannot do this. We can't do this well. We're stretching ourselves too thin. We can't keep preaching and working at prayer, which is an interesting way to describe it there. And handle the food distribution. And so what we need is we need to anoint some leaders, okay? This is not a slight at service other than preaching and praying, okay? He's just saying we've got to anoint some other leaders to, to delegate, to, to take over this for us. And so uh, one commenter said this is the first example of affirmative action here. 
Um, because if you'll notice, the apostles don't pick the seven who take over. They let the community pick. They say, y'all pick seven who y'all are comfortable with, and then they'll take it over from us. They pick the seven. You'll notice um, all seven of them have what we call Greek names, which means they're all Hellenists. So the 12 are getting complaints that the Greeks aren't being taken care of, and they said, pick seven Greeks. We'll let them take it over for us. We'll handle the situation. They handle it, and one's chosen named Stephen. Now notice the first thing I think we see about the church witnessing to the world about our triune God. The first thing we see is that for it to be effective, all of the church needs to be mobilized. They could not rely just on the apostles. The work was too big and too large and too much. The church would not be able to be as effective as they needed to be if everyone didn't stand up and fill the role that was laid out for them. You'll notice the uh, direct result when they anointed the seven, got them to work. Look in verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. What happens when the church mobilizes herself? When everybody steps up and plays a part? Well, the gospel spreads. The mission advances. And even here, the priests are being converted. These really influential people, the Jewish teachers and leaders, they're being converted. We like to think sometimes that the way church works is we hire a team of professionals or a team of specialists, and they do church for us. It's kind of this consumer uh, idea of church where we come and receive what they're going to give to us, and then we export our jobs to them. This is kind of a problem in youth ministry right now, um, is that parents export spiritually developing their kids to youth pastors. Sometimes parents export other things, like to teachers and, and things of that nature, right? We export things. We want to get less and less responsibilities. But the church was never meant to work like this. The church is an all-in type of deal. In fact, in the scriptures, this is how it always was. Ephesians 4 says that leaders and teachers and evangelists and apostles, they weren't given to do the work of ministry. They were given to equip all of God's people to do the work of ministry. And as long as there's a church who doesn't have buy-in from every person, you'll have a church who's not reaching her potential. Who's not reaching the people she could reach. Who's not making the impact she can make. Who's not witnessing to the community at large as effectively as she could. And so what happens when you have a church, when you have a community here, where there's a team who's doing it all, and people aren't stepping up and finding the role laid out for them, is you have people suffering physically and people who don't get to hear about who God is. You don't get to see what he's doing. You don't get to respond in faith. Our mission here at the church is to make disciple, making disciples of Jesus Christ and in, in doing so to glorify God. Um, and I, I constantly want to come back to that. And I constantly want to challenge you and question you. Um, if you're involved here, if you're engaged here, if you're plugged in here, what about your life? What about what you're doing? Either here or outside of here, right? I mean, that's one of our emphasis here is we don't want to be inward focused. So you could very much never serve in any capacity here at the church and still, I think, be all in for our ministry if you're serving and ministering to people outside the church. In fact, I would prefer that. Let's point outwards and not inwards. But what about your life makes disciples? What about the decisions you make builds disciples, encourages disciples? What do you do strategically, on purpose, intentionally? 
Because I'm just convinced that, that if, if you don't step up, we're all going to suffer. And more importantly, maybe people who aren't obedient to the faith right now, they're going to suffer. So you've got a church who's crippled herself because we want to sit on the sidelines. So the first thing the, the Christian community does to, to witness, to martyr to the triune God is they step up. They all buy in. They all find the role laid out for them. And they go forward. And, and the word of God increases and people are being converted. And then you have Stephen here. And Stephen is this kind of standout model example of what it looks like for an individual to witness to Christ, to witness to the Spirit, to witness to the triune God. And we look at Stephen, if you're anything like me, you get intimidated. Stephen's not the kind of guy I want to compare myself to. I want to compare myself to Ananias and Sapphira. I really don't because I've done worse than them and I haven't been killed. But at least I'm alive. I want to, I mean, I want to find the person I can look at and be like, at least I'm not that bad. But we get Stephen and Stephen looks like, I mean, just varsity level Christian over here. I mean, just going at it. But I think there are some things that you and I can learn about how individually we can witness, we can martyr to our trying God from Stephen. And so um, we'll look at three things here that maybe we can learn from Stephen. The first is this. Stephen was wholly committed to the faith. Stephen was all in. He had put all his chips on the table. There was no plan B for Stephen. Stephen had no retirement account. Right? Stephen had no backup career. Stephen had nothing to fall back on. Stephen was not living the American dream. Stephen said this, I believe this is real and this is true and it deserves everything that I've got. And so I'm in. Come what may, I'm in. I'm committed. To the point where, again, like other early Christians, he stands in the face of death seemingly fearless. He was in. We, um, since really the Roman Empire was converted, we struggle with this um, idea of nominal Christians, nominal Christianity, which is Christian in name only. So in the early church, if you wanted to be a Christian, you understood very clearly that you would probably be killed for it. In fact, we have records of people being baptized. They get into the water. They baptized naked back then, which is interesting. Um, but they would get out of the water to die. Like the Roman authorities would be on the other side. And you'd get out and they'd kill you. Next person would get in and get baptized, they'd kill you. I mean, it was a very, you knew, right? You were committing to being persecuted. Also, um, in the early church, you would have to go through a process of three years of teaching and testing before they'd let you get baptized. Which we would think, there's, that would never work, right? No one would ever want to do that if people were being killed. And it was so hard to get in, they'd never grow. It would, it would just be a failure. But then we look at the movements in history, and they grew the fastest and did the most. What we do, though, is we make it really easy to get in, and we make sure people never suffer for it. And what we have is what we call nominal Christians, people in, in name only. Why? Because they're not committed. They haven't bought in. They've been sold a bill of self-comfort. And so they're in as, as long as it serves their purposes. But at no point of, of their life have they actually sat down and said, this is true, regardless of how I feel, regardless of the situation around me, regardless of what might come in the future, this is true and I'm in. And push it all in. Stephen does, though. And that's not something that you and I are incapable of. If we want to witness, if we want to fulfill Acts 1.8, we go all in. We're wholly committed. The second thing Stephen does is he joins Jesus' mission. 
he jumps right into the purpose of Jesus. And so he not only takes over the um, distributing of the bread to the widows, um, but he also, we see in 6 uh, verse 8, full of grace and power, Stephen is doing great wonders and signs among the people. He adopts Jesus' healing ministry. We've seen all throughout Acts, the Spirit's working so powerfully through the apostles. People are being healed. Great signs and wonders are being done. Stephen jumps in on that. Stephen has a teaching ministry so great that people try to debate him in public. And it says they can't withstand the grace and the wisdom and the Spirit that he's speaking. Stephen has joined Jesus on his ministry. He says, I'm all in and I will serve and do what I can serve and I can do. And he goes to the apostles and says... I can, I can distribute bread. And he sees people on the street, and he goes, I can heal you. And he sees people questioning the faith, and he goes, I can speak about it. He, he joins. He says, I'm, I'm in, and I'm going to do it. Again, you and I are not incapable of that. No, we're not Stephen. Our faces don't look like angels. People have told me mine does, but that's a different... <laughs> I'm sorry for that. <laughs> a little low on sleep. That's not something that you and I are incapable of. I'm saying, what can we do? I'm saying, what needs are in the community around me? Who in my life can I pray for and speak truth into and love and forgive? The third thing, and maybe the most important thing that Stephen does here, is he's a disciple. He's a disciple of Jesus. He mimics Jesus. The whole story is told in a way that it seems like what's happening to Stephen is the exact same thing that happened to Jesus. Down to the things Stephen says. So watch this. Stephen not only is a man of courage in the face of persecution, much like Jesus was, but Stephen is held on trial. You compare the trials between Jesus and Stephen. They're very similar. Stephen has false witnesses brought against him. Stephen is apparently making claims like Jesus made about the temple and about the law, their fulfillment in him. If you look in chapter 7, um, verse 54, as Stephen dies, he again sees the Son of Man standing up at the right hand of God, which um, is an interesting picture here. Usually in the scriptures, we'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God. Here he stands up. And normally I've seen this as a picture of like respect. Jesus stands up to receive his servant. This is an amazing picture. Um, but this week I was introduced to another way to interpret it, which is Jesus standing up to defend Stephen. Almost as if, I don't know if you've ever been in this situation, if you have a kid maybe, um, you might be like watching a kid across the way, playing in the street or something of that nature, and you have a keen eye, right, to make sure something doesn't happen to them. And at any moment, if something appears to go wrong, you do what? You get up. And if you're not sure, right, you might just get up and look, but you're ready. You're ready to come to the defense. Um, when I was at, uh, I was at Camp Blessing um, a few years ago uh, with my little buddy Spencer, who's autistic. In fact, thank you um, to you guys. We raised over $500 for Camp Blessing, so that'll go to them, um, and it'll provide a, over one camper scholarship for them. I'll be speaking there later this week and then be going up there in a few weeks. Um, but I was with Spencer, and Spencer's my little buddy, love him to death, would die for that kid. And so he was in a room um, down the, the way in the cabin, and I was sleeping on the couch. And one night, it had been kind of a crazy night, I was still up. And I hear Spencer scream. And I was still up, and the room's like 10 feet down the hallway. So I just dart, right? I'm running toward the room. I don't realize he's in the room with another kid and then two counselors. I don't realize the door had been closed. Um, it's pitch black in the cabin, but not shut all the way, just like right to where it's almost closed. And so I go running into the door full speed, just slam the door against the wall, and everybody jumps up. And he had just had a bad dream. But the other counselor's like, 
what in the world? Like, that was an amazing reaction time right there. That was like two seconds, and you were busting down the door to see what's happening to Spencer. That's the kind of picture, right? Jesus stands up in honor of his witness and to say, he's mine. He stands up to, to welcome him into the family, into the dance. But notice what Stephen says as he's dying here. You'll remember stoning is not a pleasant way to die. If you don't know, you just pick up stones and pelt somebody until they die. It is cost-effective. Okay, you just clean the stones and go again. Um, that's actually that. <laughs> didn't mean to be you know crude there, but that's actually one of the reasons they would do stoning back in the day. It's just real easy, easy materials, easy cleanup. Go again. You don't waste any money. You don't do anything like that. They stone Stephen. You should imagine bloody, crying, bones breaking. But Stephen's described as again full of grace. And as he's being stoned, he cries out, receive my spirit. And then what does he cry out in a loud voice? Interesting. He says the first one just regularly. And the second one he says in a loud voice, forgive them. Don't hold their sins against them. Two things to notice. One is that this is not the usual way for people to die. Particularly religious martyrs in the first century. Particularly Jewish martyrs in the first century. When they were killed for their faith, very famously, they would taunt the people killing them. So I'd be getting pelted, and I'd start to remind the people pelting me of what would come their way after they died, right? And what would come my way after I died, just to let them know I'm going to win ultimately. Jesus, though, does something radically different. As he's dying, he goes, Father, let me plead with you. Don't count this against them. They don't know what they're doing. Stephen echoes his master here. Like someone who has digested who Jesus is and what he taught. The second thing to notice is that typically when you die, your true self comes out. Or in any type of quick situation where you just react, right? And Stephen doesn't react with anger or hate or confusion. He reacts with love. Love for his enemy, which is one of Jesus' greatest teachings. Stephen's a guy who followed Jesus, who listened to the teaching who repented of his ways and tried to be like Jesus, slowly but surely. So Romans 8 would say, our destiny as Christians is to be conformed to the image of the Son, to look more and more and more like Jesus. First John would say, if you claim to abide in him, you must walk the way that he walked. And so the picture of Christian discipleship, the picture that Stephen models for us as one who witnesses to the triune God, is one who slowly but surely looks more and more like Jesus, talks more and more like Jesus, loves more and more like Jesus, to the point where he gets here, reacts, and it's like Jesus is talking. Why? Because he was a disciple. Why? Because he, over time, started to look a lot like Jesus. A question I would have for you would be, take an ask with your life, okay? Your speech, um, your, the way you spend money, the way you treat other people, I mean, whatever it would be. Does, does how you do that, does that look more like Jesus would do that than five years ago? I'm not one for perfection, okay? I'm not one for quick gains. I don't think you can become the best person in the world in two weeks if you try really, really hard. I think discipleship is slow and steady. It's not like growing as a human being. You don't often notice it's happening until years later when you look back. But if you were to look back five years from now, are you more like Jesus? Do you talk more like Jesus? If not... That should be a red flag. Something has gone off in your life. Something's um, miswired in your life. 
You're not listening to the scriptures clearly enough. You're not walking community clearly enough. Something's, you're not worshiping. Something's not going right. Stephen's a witness. He's a martyr. And he does this, I think, primarily by looking like Jesus. Acting like Jesus. Talking like Jesus. Once again, this is not something you and I are incapable of. Hard, to be sure. Time-consuming, to be sure. But for those who are serious about the faith, there really is no other option other than just deceiving ourselves. Slow, steady process of discipleship where we look more and more and more like Jesus. So here's the picture to wrap it up this morning we get. We'll come back next week and dig into Stephen's speech, which is very rich. But this morning we have this picture of the early Christians witnessing, giving evidence and testimony to the triune God. And the witnesses of a group of people who all found their place, who all joined in on the mission, who put it all on the table, and who followed Christ passionately. And what we see is the gospel expanded. What we see, not only are people converted, but they're experiencing the divine dance. They're brought into God's love. They experience a peace and a joy and a satisfaction that they never could have anticipated that had never been available to them before, but that they found was right within their grasp as they believed and followed and served. My prayer is that you and I would follow in their footsteps. Maybe we'd look at Stephen this morning and go, what, what in my life needs to change? What in my life needs to, to be different? What about our church might need to be a little bit different? What about my idea and conception and view of God might need to be a little bit different? Let's pray together. Father, we, we love you. We praise you um, for who you are. We praise you for giving us the scriptures, um, for not leaving us to our own devices, uh, but revealing yourself to us. We pray this morning, Father, that you would continue to speak and to move into us, that you would not um, leave us to our own ways, that you would haunt us if we if we resisted you we know at the end of the day father there is no life found outside of you and so we we want you we want to find you we want to go after you we pray father that you'd send your spirit that you'd move in us powerfully and that we would um, slowly but surely be those who are conformed to the image of the one who lived and died and rose again we love you it's in your son's name we pray amen